Thank you so much, Amanda, for that very kind introduction. Good afternoon, everybody. I am so thrilled to be here this afternoon. What a beautiful function, what a beautiful day. I'm surrounded by beautiful, happy, successful, empowered, powerful women, uh, and of course, two gentlemen. <laughs> I, I, I really am very, very pleased to be here. Um, I was listening with great interest at the debate and the conversation we had a little bit earlier on. And indeed, this topic that we've got to contend with today women, power, and money, is a big topic. And it covers such important and very deep-rooted aspects of who we are and want to be as, as women and as women um, in, in unison. Um, so thank you to, to you, Jay, for arranging that we all get together and deliberate on what is a very important conversation. Um, and thank you, indeed, for, for affording me the opportunity to share some thoughts. Now, the word power itself has so many aspects and, and, and facets to it. Um, so for today, maybe let's ask that we define it as follows. The ability of an individual or a group to fulfill their specific desires and implement their decisions and ideas. Now, for many of us, with spring coming, we are going to be thinking a lot about self-will um, in the context of what we eat and do. But power is an even bigger topic. It's about power over what, how we go about allocating resources, how we go about providing opportunities, how we go about running even our own lives. The power, indeed, to choose one's individual path is undeniably central to our very being and should never be underestimated, provided that we know what it is we want, as we were reminded this morning. As a mom, and a leader in my own organization, I'm constantly put in a position where I have to make decisions, which I know are going to impact on the lives of other people in terms of them as employees and their families, but also on the nation. And I've got to keep reminding myself to get back to the center of my own being so that I am making the type of decisions that display appropriate levels of stewardship, appropriate levels of understanding my own responsibility as a leader, but also do make those decisions with the required level of integrity. Now let me take a moment to tell you a little bit about our organization. The Office of the Auditor General, yes, first woman in 103 year history, it is an old organization. It is a function of state, one of the chapter nine organizations. Many of you have heard of the public office, uh, the public protector, am I right? Yeah. So we're the other sister, okay. <laughs> and our job is to help to strengthen democracy. And this we do by auditing all of the public sector, whether it's a municipality, whether it's a department in provincial government, a national government, whether it's a public entity. And ours really is to audit and report so that you as citizens understand how your taxes are being applied. We do this work um, throughout all nine provinces. We have 3,300 people that work with us in our organization, 500 of whom are chartered accountants, I'm pleased to say, uh, with a very high concentration of black and women chartered accountants. Uh, <laughs> um, professionals who serve with, with a high level of passion and dedication to try and improve the lives of others through what we do as experts in the field of auditing. Three of my biggest 
divisions or three biggest regions being Gauteng, KZN, and the Western Cape are led by women. So you can understand that I am called upon to manage a team that's got women and men, so I've got to deal with them with, the, with influence and exert power in a way that actually is going to get me the type of results we want, right? So I've got to make sure that they continue to choose to do the work that we do and create an environment where they thrive. So I must lead with strength. Yes, Funeka, sometimes I have to be called that other word. But I must also lead with, with, uh, with, with some level of elegance as well. Throughout history, women have been said to possess traits that are the exact opposite to power, as is often characterized. We are labeled as being the weaker sex, the weaker beings, because we're often not being seen to measure up to our male counterparts. Now, although big strays have been made in the area of women leadership, we do still struggle. Individually, in all of our different roles, we strive to prove that we are not weak, we strive to hide our emotions, and we strive to work doubly hard to avoid um, being seen as being weak leaders. This, however, is actually to our own detriment, because in all of these attempts, we're seeking to become effectively second-rate men, if you think about it, instead of focusing our attention on becoming outstanding female <coughs> leaders. In reality, as we were reminded by Dr. Rainsberg, God made us differently from men. We have different strengths, we have different attributes, and we've got to lead in a manner that demonstrates the strength of those attributes. We've got to ensure that the world experiences a different brand of leadership, the different brand of leadership that it so needs right across societies, right across the, the globe. So our concern as women leaders ought to be on creating the type of society where men and women will thrive, where indeed we are creating a world that is getting increasingly better and we're creating the type of platforms where individuals are able to give expression to their talents regardless of their gender. Things have changed over the last century, thank you to the efforts of many women, among them um, the women of the 1956 march who marched to the union buildings to protest against past laws and also started uh, a journey towards um, reducing the uh, levels of discrimination against women. But we also must take a moment to pay tri tribute to ordinary women who might not have marched, who quietly, in their own homes, dared to tell their daughters that it's okay to have big ambitions, that actually, inconsistent with what the rest of the world will tell you, you, my little girl, must accept that you belong in different places beyond the kitchen, beyond being barefoot and pregnant. Today, women play key roles in industries. We lead many great organizations, be it in the private sector, in the public sector, even organizations that we dare to start up as entrepreneurs. But we also note that despite the success we register, especially in the area of corporate leadership, women, sadly, still earn less than their male counterparts. Last year, Bloomberg News reported in an analysis of the highest paid executives amongst S&P 500 companies. They indicated that, on average, women executives 
are earning 18% less than their counterparts. Now, Kim talked about, do we really want to be giving away this 5 million rand over the course of our careers earlier on? But if you look even sharper at this thing, Maria Samaya, Maria Samaya, remember she's the one who was appointed the CEO of Yahoo, very young and female, so it was a wonderful moment for all of us as women across the world to, to take note of. She's, she was the second best paid woman on a list that the New York Times compiled, uh, earning 24.9 million US dollars in a particular year. But she still earned less than what that very same company was paying to a man that reported to her. The chief operating officer of Yahoo earned less than what she did. The new CEO of General Motors, remember we celebrated when Mary Barra was, was, was appointed um, as the CEO of that great organization of the United States. She was, she's also being paid less than her male predecessor. Where maybe it's due to the inability to negotiate upfront Maybe it's due to not knowing how to ask for that it is that we want. Maybe it's neglecting that inner six-year-old that still exists within us, Kim. But what we know is that for now, equal pay for equal work has not been realized. I think, therefore, all of us as women must applaud the work of our government. South African government recently um, promulgated the Employment Equity Act and its amendments, uh, and a key element of that particular amendment was this rather innovative idea that equal work for equal pay must happen, must be evident in all that we do. Effectively, what it means is that over and above what are very progressive um, legislative frameworks around the inclusion of women, around transformation, around the advancement of women, is this new element that makes equal pay for equal work a prerequisite when we engage as employers. When an employer is unable to prove why they would pay A less than B for the same work, they would have to explain or face up to the reality that they are contravening the provisions even of the Constitution around unfair discrimination in the workplace. Now, as important as these legal instruments are. All of us know that the real fundamental change to organizations and to society is going to come when cultures, when behaviors, when attitudes change. And in order for that to happen, we can look no further than ourselves as leaders. For all of us in this room, our leaders in our different spheres, in our different contexts. All of us have got to do those things and make those choices that are driving the change in attitudes, in behaviors, and the culture. Because for all the legal instruments we'll put into place, um, many a corporate we know will uh, hire a very smart attorney or, dare I say it, accountant, to help them circumvent that particular provision. So we've all got to rally around the movement of changing attitudes, of changing behaviors and changing cultures. Now, $24 million in anyone's world, US dollars, is a lot of money, right? It gives options. It uh, helps you compile that runaway fund 
Um, but it, it gives you real options around what sort of relationships you choose to stay in, as Dr. Nono alluded to earlier on today. I have my own example of it. That's, that's why Funega was very quick to put my hand up and say, I have a runaway fund, <laughs> because I was taught very early on about the importance of maintaining one's independence and maintaining one's power, as, especially around money, because it does give you the opportunity to make informed and real choices so that you're not sort of bumbling along as, as life will take you. With an increasing number of women making significant amounts of money and gaining the power and enjoying the um, options that it gives us, we ought to reflect on how women deal with their money as well. There's a certain level of wisdom that must go with how we manage our monies. I believe wholeheartedly that money is it's important, but it remains a means to an end rather than being an end in and of itself. It is rather what we choose to do with our money that is of paramount importance than how much we earn. So I, like any other woman, enjoy nice shoes, good handbags, and I'm so glad we were given permission that there is a third that you can blow, the, blow on, on these things because it's important. But we know that as South Africans, we're not saving nearly enough money. We also know that as women and as mothers, we ought to teach our daughters by example. We also must set about creating the type of platform that is higher than where we began. So if you have the capacity to create an environment where your children don't have to opt out of university or opt out of full-time studies because they have no funds, you must make actively take decisions today to ensure that that does not happen. All of us must ensure that young people are taught by observing how we deal with money in terms of how it is that they must deal with money. There's an interesting dynamic that's, that's happening right across the world. As women earn more and become the chief breadwinners, so too society is called upon to change. For you see, pre-1970, before the birth control pill became available easily, women didn't have the options that we have today. So we can plan our education, we can plan our careers around the things we want, because many of us do want families, many of us do want children, we just want to have them when we think it's appropriate. And it's wonderful that we have this. But it means that the world is having to respond to these changes. Our men are having to respond to these changes. So we've got generation that is having to rethink how families are organized, how responsibilities and roles are defined as we set about the work of raising kids and creating homes. About two years ago, Lisa Mondi, the um, US-based author and journalist, some of you may know her, she did an autobiography on um, the, the First Lady of the United States, Michelle Obama. Lisa penned an article that reflected on the feminist gains of working women, changing gender roles around men and women in the workplace and implications for relationships between men and women. And she wrote about a Michigan family that had seen phenomenal change over one generation. 
In the 1970s, the father of this family was the sole breadwinner. He worked while the mother stayed home with their six children. Today, these six children have families of their own. What was interesting is that five out of these six families have women, the wives, the mothers, as the chief breadwinners. So it means that these five couples have actively made decisions about how they're going to organize themselves. In these contexts, the men took on the type of careers and jobs that give them flexibility so they can look after the young children and maintain a home and make life easier for the chief breadwinner, who's a woman. Sounds like how many of us tend to organize ourselves, right? Uh, other way around, though. So it is obviously causing a space for very interesting conversations and negotiation between the two partners. And I guess what was striking for me is the reality that these five siblings didn't have their parents as a reference point. They couldn't say what happened at home. Um, they also can't say what happens next door because next door they're still struggling with the same thing. And that's what's happening, I think, in our society as well. As women are advancing in their careers and, and, and earning more, so too we're having to have these conversations with our own partners without too much regard for what's happening elsewhere, without the reference point that gives comfort. It is daunting. It is difficult. And women also are becoming resentful about how money is being spent and having to be respons responsible because if you're a chief breadwinner, you can't really say my money is mine. You know, when we do budgets, it's yours that we look at predominantly, right? So it's women now that are worried about, well, how are we spending my money? <laughs> and how are we ensuring that at least I get the privileges and benefits associated with being the chief breadwinner around here? Prof said he reminded people last year about who pays the bills. Well, it's the women in these homes who are reminding other people, but hey, I pay the bills. But also women are having to contend with the very notion that they're not there for their child's first steps and that their, their children are closest to their fathers rather than them. And that's counterintuitive to what many of these women would have dreamt about when they're six years old playing house or, or practicing walking down the aisle as many a young girl does when they were being read fairy tale stories by their mothers. That is not what they envisioned. So they're having to contend with this change. And of course it is challenging. Of course it causes resentment. The men themselves, the rational choice to say, well, my wife earns better, her earnings potential is better, so it's better that she goes to work. But he was raised in a family where it was the man that worked. You know, it was the man who came home and demanded to be served on a tray. But guess what? Actually, she's just as tired as you might be when you get home. So these are the challenges that all of us have to contend with. And I, I, I was interested when, when Funeka talked about women do, um, doing work that they're not being paid for. When I did some research, I, was, I spotted that stats I say in the agenda report released just last year indicated that women are earning more, they're working days that are just as long as their partners, but they get home and have to do more work, which leaves men open to go and socialize, go and study, stay connected, read the newspapers, and all of those things. So 
So it is, it is challenging. It is extremely challenging. As daunting as all of these things are, um, the only place we can look for answers has to be within us. Has to be in our ability to know what we want and to own the choices we make. It has to be in our ability to negotiate effectively and on an ongoing basis with our partners, to communicate effectively, because our daughters and our sons have only us to learn from. So that's where they're going to learn. Now, one last bit I want to chat about today is women and our money. Not our money with my partner, but our money more generally as citizens. There's no doubt that we live in one of the most unequal societies in the world. This simply translates to a better life for some, a better life for those who have access to opportunities, to resources, to employment, and a whole range of other empowering opportunities. The onus, therefore, is on those of us who have the power to allocate opportunity, the power to allocate resources, to do so in a manner that acknowledges that it is women, especially young women, that bear the brunt of this very unequal society. We know that it is women in different parts of our country that experience on a daily basis those triple challenges that face South Africa today. Unemployment, inequality, and poverty. We know that it is women that rely so much on the consistent access to social assistance. We know that it is women who rely on having a state that's able to provide that social support, that social network, provide basic services more than anyone else. You and I can make our, our own arrangements largely. Yes, we'll moan about the potholes, but we'll arrange our affairs so that in three, four, five years' time we can buy, buy the type of car that's not going to be damaged because there's a pothole. You and I can make our own arrangements around security. We'll hire uh, private security firms. We'll put up gates. But it is those people that bear the brunt, the real brunt of South Africa's challenges that can't afford to do that. It is for them that we ought to be conscious of how our state, of how government is looking after our affairs, whether or not we are creating the capacity for government to manage its affairs in a way that will protect and safeguard assets and resources so that services can be granted today and tomorrow. Now, many of you would have noted last week, amongst the noise of everything else, but last week the Auditor General issued his report on the state of municipalities in the country. We audit 319 local government institutions. That includes 286 municipalities. Out of those, 30 got clean audits. You remember that headline, right? Okay. By the way, and it's good that I'm at UJ with people who have accountants here. Do you guys know what a clean audit is? Before I went there, I didn't. I, was, I've been, I got to the office of the Auditor General two and a half years ago. And I had no idea what a clean audit is. So can I ask somebody to tell us? 
Now give a prize. <laughs> to be determined. Any takers on what a keen audit is? No takers. <laughs> okay, there's a hand over there. Yes, my sister. Yes, perfect, perfect. So, as a state institution, so say a municipality, you have budgeted to do certain things. You've then been allocated the money to do those certain things. You've specified these things that you're going to do. So you put together a performance report to say, I have done them. And then you have also promised that you will obey the laws of the country because you're an institution of state, you must obey the laws of the country. So you've also promised that. So if you're able to do three things, account for the budget that you've been given, as she rightly says, you've budgeted. And you're able to say, this is what I did with it. I've got a performance report, and I can prove to you, I said I would build three schools, here they are. I said I would fix five roads, here they are. I said that I would employ and pay 10 teachers, here it is. Okay? So you're able to say, this is what I did. And the last thing is to say, I observed the laws of the country in doing so. Those are the three things. So that's why we have what we call a clean audit. What it does, it indicates to you whether or not government or that particular institution, that municipality or that department, has created capacity, institutional capacity, to be able to deliver these things that they've promised in a manner that's efficient, in a manner that economic, that's economic and that's, efficient, that's effective. So it tells you, has that municipality done that which citizens expect of it? And has it got the capacity to do so? So you also heard another headline from last week that consultants were paid 700 million rand to help municipalities prepare their financials. Remember that? So what it means is that those municipalities didn't have the capacity to put together their financials. So they went and hired a private sector, external service provider, a professional accountant. And they said, come and help us put these things together. And it means, therefore, that this private sector person, who happens to also be a citizen, by the way, came and prepared these financials. But there were still problems with those financials. So it means that this private sector person, who's a citizen, didn't do what they were supposed to do. They didn't add value into the system. They didn't add value into building capacity for the state. And yet they got paid. So if you remember nothing else from last week, because I know we live in a very fast-paced world and there are many, many headlines all over the time. If you remember one thing, please remember that all of us have a responsibility to create capacity for the state to look after us as a society. All of us. Whether you are running a municipality, whether you are lecturing people at university, because it is those that teach young professionals that must ensure that those young professionals understand the context within which they operate. 
understand the ethical responsibilities they have as professionals. So whether you are lecturing, whether you are a parent, whether you're a private sector service provider, all of us collectively have an immense responsibility to ensure that we use our power to build capacity for the state to manage its affairs for our benefit. Because at the end of the day, this is about building a country, a country that we're going to leave for our children and their children as well. And if we're going to allow ourselves to get comfortable with taking shortcuts, whether as a service provider, whether as government, because it's really taking shortcuts, right? If we're going to allow ourselves to take shortcuts, we are bleeding the country of real opportunity to create a better world for the next generation. So I'll end off on this note. South Africa needs men and women to apply all of their talents, all of their power, all of their influence to ensure that we really do create a better world than what we found. Because we have to ensure that we leave the type of country where the end is always better than where we began. So I'll leave you with one quote from that great feminist, Simone de Beauvoir, who says, one's life has value so long as one attributes value to the life of others by means of love, of friendship, of indignation, and of compassion. I thank you. Thank you.